I'm Adam Strauss. And I'm Jordan Iper, MD. And this is not therapy. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much therapy. It's not therapy, man. Welcome, everyone, who everyone may just be our mothers, to another episode of Not Therapy. I'm Adam Strauss. I'm Jordan Iper, MD. You, that little pause, I was like, is he going to say the MD? But of course, yeah, I always have to say the MD. So yeah, and I, I think, well, we're going to get into some some new stuff today, but if people are listening sequentially, uh, yesterday I was grappling with this decision of basically, should I stay or should I go? Should I stay in the Bay Area or should I go back to the East Coast to be with my parents? And was feeling a lot of OCD anxiety around that. And I've decided, at least for the moment, to stay here. It seems better to not get on a plane if I don't have to. So, so I feel calmer about that. But one interesting thing, you brought up this yesterday, Jordan, was one of the ways the OCD functions definitely, and I'd say one of its purposes, I look at it broadly as something that it, it tries to protect me in all sorts of ways. And one of the ways in which it does that is when I'm in the OCD, I don't worry about anything else. And there is a lot going on with this relationship with Clara, who I flew across the country to quarantine with her. And then after a few days, she changed her mind. And I realized yesterday, I wasn't thinking about her at all. So it's Monday now. She left late Thursday night. So in the immediate aftermath of that, you'd think there'd be a lot to process and a lot to feel. And there is, but when I'm in the OCD, I'm not worrying about anything. All I was worried about yesterday was making the quote unquote right decision, the perfect decision with this travel question. And as the OCD has receded around that, I've certainly been feeling more of that, that loss. And you can't see this, but my hand is sort of automatically going to my heart area because that's where I feel it. And there's been a lot of heartache. I woke up probably four in the morning last night, just out, just really feeling this intense ache, not metaphorically, just my, the area where my heart is, was, was physically aching. And it's not at this moment for whatever reason, but clearly that's, you know, there's, there's work to be done around that. And even though this is not therapy, let's get into it. I, we talked a little bit about sort of, since there's so much to unpack there, but I, I, getting some context, of course, you being a, a professional therapist, the context being my history with sex, love, romantic relationships, and, and also yours as well. Because as we've talked over the years, there's a lot of parallels so the ache I'm feeling, to, to be clear, is not necessarily the ache of, oh, it's over, but the specific morning of, she's not here right now. And I had bargained on having this experience of us really getting to know each other in a deep way and, and having that experience with a woman who I've wanted to get to know more than I've wanted to get to know anyone in probably more than a decade. So the morning is just the immediate, that immediate loss. But yes, there, there, it may also be the end of that relationship. We'll, we'll find out together, if not this episode, the next one. We haven't gotten into, into talking about Clara together all that much yet, but it, it seems pretty clear. You haven't known her for very long. And the amount of passion and strong feeling that has arisen, I feel as though for me, is it's a clue that something much bigger than her is going on here in your mind. Um, given that she hasn't been in your life for, for months and months or years and years. And so whenever I see, 
whenever I see something relatively a relationship that's relatively new aroused such intense passions, it feels to me like a clue that this is scratching an old wound. And I, I think that's what made us curious to sort of, before we dive into her and the here and now, spend some time going back and doing some excavation in your relationship history. Um, man, I know this is going to go back to my mom. There's no way we're not going to wind up talking about my mom with, 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 with you on the line. Uh, well, we might even have I to say, go to grandma. You, we, actually, <laughs> there's a lot with grandma too. There's a lot going, with grandma too. We're going back to the shuttle. <laughs> The, the inter, right, the epigenetic inherited trauma. But yeah, no, and I say that only half facetiously because as I think I said yesterday in our, in our premiere episode, you've certainly opened me up to the idea that I had kind of rejected that, oh yeah, a lot of this does relate to primary caregiver stuff. And I actually saw that very clearly as things were unfolding with Clara a few days ago where it was really what you were saying. I was like, man, the reactions I'm having the intensity around them. Yeah, clearly there, there's more than just this woman whom I've only known a few months, albeit a, a few intense months. I guess a starting point, I won't start with mom, but I will start, well, you know what? Well, let's start with mom. I have a sense that what feels most real for you is to start with your first romantic attachments. And I bet that'll be a porthole th- that we dive into and we wind up swimming in an ocean of mom. <laughs> swimming in an ocean of mom. <laughs> yeah. Well, and well, the first one was very connected. So probably where I'd start was, well, with what today I would call the body dysmorphic disorder. And that mm. relates very much. That was a huge part of my first real romantic relationship, which was when I was, I had just turned 18. But prior to that, I became convinced at roughly age 11 or 12 that I was hideously deformed. My lips specifically, I thought were just grotesque, massive, you know, I say it kind of clinically and dispassionately, but this was the fact was from age, let's say, I think it was probably 11, 11 until roughly age 20. If you asked me why I suffered in life, I would say the only real reason I suffered was because I was so ugly. I reached this conclusion in a sort of logical, but ultimately very twisted fashion, basically, well, here, here, here's the first mom drop. People would always tell me I look just like my mother. And I realized my mother has very, uh, very thick, many people consider them sensuous or voluptuous, but she has big lips and, and my lips are certainly not small either. And I would I, say I they're sensuous th- and voluptuous. <laughs> Thank you. I, and actually I see them that way now. And in fact, more than one romantic partner has said that they really love my lips. But at this point, it was all happening around the same time, right? So you start to, I'm starting to go through puberty. I'm becoming aware of this interest in women and then realizing, well, so women did not seem to be interested in me at a very early age. I had some adolescent crushes, 12, 13, and they weren't reciprocated. And there could be all sorts of reasons, but my hyperlogical yet ultimately, I think, very self-referential brain, by which I mean that a lot of the data I was processing was not data from the world, but from my own thoughts and my thoughts looping in on them themselves, I reached this conclusion. It was really a, uh, I was going to say Eureka, 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 uh, Eureka moment where I remember so clearly I'm looking in the mirror and I'm kind of trying to assess, am I good looking? Am I not? And it just hits me. Wow. Your lips are huge. Your lips are huge. And this is why people say you look like your mom. And 
I was convinced isn't even strong enough because that implies some sort of, it, it was a fact. It was like, I, I was convinced I was ugly in the same way I'm convinced that it's overcast right now in Oakland. I just have to look and I see the primary sensory data that is inarguable. I was ugly to the point of being deformed. And this became sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, not that it made me physically ugly, but approaching the world with this orientation, particularly women, gave me this real desperation, this neediness that tended to scare girls off. Mm. And then I met Erica and I fell for her and she fell for me reluctantly. I think she sensed that similar to what you were saying, there was a part of me that she was sort of an object. She was sort of fulfilling something that ultimately did not have to do with her. And I think my intensity was, was somewhat frightening of both my ardor for her and my general, just, you know, I was an intense kid. I'm an intense adult, but I I know how to modulate it and manage it. Now I didn't then I would say I was quite unhappy growing up despite having good parents and all that, there was just, there was a a sense that we can get more into this of, of deep discontent of something being wrong, which predated the realization of my ugliness. So there was a sense that something is wrong. Then I realized I'm ugly. It was this, aha, well, that's what's wrong. Now we know the answer, which made me all the more desperate to find some sort of love or validation from romantic partners. And Erica was the first one. And I mean, she is, she's a wonderful, beautiful inside and out person, just a, a great person, someone who I, I have deep love for. We don't talk that often, but when we do, it's, yeah, there, there's love there, an unquestioned love. So it, it wasn't random, you know, that I fixated on her. Part of it was that she was somewhat open to it. And part of it was that there was a deep connection. I appreciate now how rare it is, real love. And I think there were elements of real love, even in this very immature, very sort of self-absorbed relationship. But ultimately, without getting into the whole story, this was basically the entire summer before college we were together. And it was, there was absolute, I mean, love, love is an incredibly powerful drug and I was just high. And so that, that sense of lack, that sense of something missing, something being wrong, It wasn't that it went away entirely. It was more like in the face of this chemical high when I was with this person and we were together, you know, every day, nothing else really mattered. It was like, this is the answer. This is the thing that I've been missing and I'm finally getting it. And it felt like this was going to save me, frankly. So just to make sure to track the timeline. So starting around 11, 12, you have the blossoming of sexual feelings and, and recognizing attractiveness and the onset of feeling really unattractive yourself and fixating on your lips. And then throughout middle school and high school, basically there is this pattern continues where you're feeling a, a lot of lust and unrequited love for women. And then Erica comes along near the end of high school and all of a sudden it's as though a hole in you is filled up. Is that? Yeah, that's it. And I, I would add, oh, one thing I wanted, I threw out a term earlier, I wanted to define it. I mentioned body dysmorphic disorder, which is yeah. now considered a subtype of OCD. And it's worth mentioning, I did not have OCD in any other form at this point. I was clearly obsessive and anxious, but I did not have OCD in, in its classic form. But this body dysmorphic disorder, which is essentially 
a, a fixation on some sort of perceived physical flaw clearly is what I had. I wasn't diagnosed with it then. So yeah, throughout middle school, you know, I took steps to try to mitigate the effects of my ugliness. I obsessively lifted weights. I actually weighed about 40 pounds more. Well, now I put on some, <laughs> some fat, but I put on about 40 pounds of muscle throughout high school. I was lifting weights for hours every day uh, as a way to like, well, I can't do anything about my lips, but I can make my body more attractive. Another domain that's worth touching upon was just platonic relationships, friendships. I had no friends in eighth grade and I did develop a really good group of friends. So that was, you know, there was some good social development, but yes, there was still this sense of something profoundly wrong and missing. And it felt like that hole was filled by Erica, but it did not interestingly alleviate the fixation of my ugliness. And part of this was she was hesitant to have sex. We were, you know, we were engaging in sexual acts, but in terms of intercourse, she was hesitant. And I saw that increasingly as well. Yeah, she loves me because we said we loved each other and we did love each other. But even someone who loves me still can't get past her just revulsion to the point that she actually wants to to make love with me. So that, that was, was the story. source. That was the story. Yeah, that, that was yeah. the narrative. I mean, it was... Yeah. It was confused because it was like, well, she doesn't mind getting naked with me and kissing me. But it was, yes, at some level, it was, there was a belief that, that that was still, that problem was still unsolved and ultimately insoluble. And then soon after we went to college, she, she dumped me. She broke up with me. I went to visit her and she told me she was seeing someone else. She was seeing a woman which I took as sort of the ultimate indictment that I was so repulsive, I turned her off of my entire gender. I'm saying that somewhat tongue in cheek, but there was a sense of that, really. Uh, well, yeah, to be fair, she- thing, we're talking, it's, you know, it's funny to look back on all these adolescent insecurities, and I definitely had them. I was really late to go through puberty. And I remember so well these years of obsessions with girls, you know, 15 years old when I was 13 or 14, I always liked older girls and they would be dating some guy who was 16 and had a little mustache. And I couldn't even, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't even remotely in, in contention. And I also thought that I had horribly large earlobes. That was my thing. I have robust earlobes as an adult. <laughs> voluptuous, sensual. Voluptuous earlobes. Your, your ear, I've never registered your earlobes in, in any, any way. And even looking at them now, they, they look pretty normal to me. But, but yes. Thank you. That's deeply reparative. <laughs> but at the time, you know, I think my face did kind of grow into them. As, as happens with adolescents, different parts of your face grow first. So... I'm probably not the only Jew who was really insecure about the size of his nose when he was an adolescent. I thought it was huge. I had, I had a, through a series of accidents, I had a deviated septum. I'd broken my nose a couple of times and I could barely breathe out of it. And I got surgery on the septum to repair it so that I could breathe through my nose. And I remember wanting the surgeon to, to do the outside too. I was really pulling for that. And my parents were like, no. And, you know, my face eventually grew around it and I'm, I'm no longer insecure about the size of my nose. That's all to say, 
it's funny to look back on this stuff, but the intensity of the pain that I felt at those times and that you felt at those times cannot be overstated. I was totally torn apart by this stuff. I remember sitting on AOL instant messenger and just desperately trying to suck some love out of these girls that I had crushes on. And you know, just like a little heart emoji would, would be a fix. It would, that would be my, like we were talking about the, addictive nature of OCD yesterday. And I remember like getting, getting some affection over, over AOL instant messenger uh, would, you know, that would be my hit for the evening, even though they didn't want to date me. And it was, I think it was, you know, right up there with the most acute emotional pain I've ever felt in my life. Wow. I mean, you, you've, you've talked a little about this. I didn't realize it was that all consuming for you. Yeah, it sounds like my, yeah, it sounds like we're, we're in the same boat there. Yeah. And it's not, I don't, I I think it's very common. I actually have a friend who will have to, he's a psychiatrist. He's a very close friend. I just want to jump in because this is, people can't see video. So just, you know, Jordan and I are both extremely attractive. That's (laughs) extremely attractive, Uh, almost, almost obnoxiously so. So I know. clearly it was just a delusion. I'm no professional nose model, actually. I, uh, <laughs> I have endorsement deals with Chapstick. It's, uh, yeah, it's actually, they sponsor this episode, so. <laughs> they will. But, but it is worth mentioning that I, I, I think, yeah, that I, I don't think people, though, as you said, maybe there, maybe those features that we were insecure about were actually somewhat more prominent then, but it clearly was an obsessive thing in our minds almost entirely. Yeah. And I'm also still totally not out on the other side of it. I have, I would, I would hazard to guess that I think about my appearance more than lots of guys out there. And, mm-hmm. you know, and so I still, I still have the traces of this, of this, vanity obsession from my adolescence. And it, I definitely, I think it definitely still plagues me just to one degree or another. I, I want to go more into that, but to, to finish the, the loop with my body dysmorphic disorder, what ultimately happened for me was a, a few years after things ended with Erica, I basically had sort of enough data from women telling me I was attractive that I accepted it, but there was really one incident in particular. I remember so clearly I was, I was hooking up with a woman in college and she'd often be kind of rejecting towards me, but then sometimes would be very affectionate and we weren't having sex, but we'd make out and occasionally she would let me feel her breasts, which was amazing. And I still, still remember those moments fondly. So we were doing that. And she said something, which was unusual for her. She said, you know, Adam, you're actually a pretty cool guy. <laughs> and, and I said, I don't remember what the entire context was, what we were talking about, but it was like we would kiss, we'd separate, talk a little bit. And she said that. And I said, I said, yeah, too bad. I'm so ugly. And she's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm ugly. My lips. And she looked at me with, I still remember the look. It was just she was so taken aback. And then she said a sentence that I will never forget. She said, you're not ugly. Like, why, why do you think I'm doing this with you? 
<laughs> he said something like, you know, well, you know, you like my personality. <laughs> and she was, <laughs> she was like, uh, <laughs> don't give yourself too much credit there. But, but then she said, no, you're cute. And then she said the sentence that I will never forget. She said, she said, even Tanaz said you're cute. And Tanaz was this woman I was hooking up with. It was her roommate. And Tanaz hated me. And I didn't know why. And it drove me fucking crazy. This is probably touching on some codependent aspects, desperate need for validation. But it really bothered me that this woman, the roommate, was you know palpably hostile to me for no reason. And the fact that the woman I was hooking up with, the woman I was hooking up with, her name was Jenny. First of all, we didn't have this sort of relationship where she would even care about really reassuring me, you know, or lying to me to protect my feelings that I wasn't ugly. But if she did, it's such an implausible way to do it to say that this person who clearly doesn't like me concedes that I'm attractive. And I just realized she was telling the truth that this person who hated me, her roommate Tanaz, actually thought I was attractive and therefore I wasn't ugly. And it was, it felt incredible. And I felt like, you know, again, this was the source of suffering. This was the one thing that made my existence intolerable. And now it's kind of like if you found out you had, you know, terminal cancer, you have six weeks left to live. And then the doctor calls you up and is like, oh, you know what? Sorry, false positive. We flipped your charts. You're totally fine. Just it felt like the, the commuting of a death sentence or maybe better put, you know, life in solitary confinement. I was convinced that mm. no one would love me. Mm. But the truth is I wasn't any happier after that. So <laughs> good that your problems were solved. <laughs> right. I mean, there was a momentary lift and I yeah. certainly got a lot more confident about around women and that led to, we can get back into the relationship stuff, but that sense of something being wrong was still persistent. So that's how it sort of resolved for me. And I will say, in contrast to, you know, you said you still grapple with this. I really don't grapple with it. I don't think about my appearance much. I, there can certainly be some vanity, you know, I'm vain about my hair and I, I can, but I, I kind of don't think I'm beautiful, but I just sort of accept that my looks are not a deficit and probably an asset with most people. So I would say that I am pretty much entirely over at least the external feeling of being ugly. There, I'm sure there's still some lingering inner stuff. So how did it, how did it progress and proceed and to the extent it has resolved for you? Yeah, it's interesting what you, when you said data points from different women and that's, I feel like that's such a big topic that we could spend a lot of time going into is this question of external validation versus internal validation is there a is there a number of times you can be reassured or i think so many men in our i guess we've never we've never told people our like rough demographic information you're we're both in we're in our 30s 30s and or 40s yeah yeah i'm in my 40s i'm 45 yeah and i am 32 fucking bastard (laughs) but i feel like i feel i feel like you're there are some ways in which i think i feel like you are out in front of me in the relationship department a bit particularly particularly around confidence with women Mm -hmm. i think that the reason we're here is that we both struggle 
you know, with finding love, with committing to women. But it seems to me that you at this point in your life have figured out the basics of meet someone, establish a connection, talk, get a phone number, go on a date, start dating. That seems to go more smoothly for you. And I'm interested in exploring the generational differences there too, because I, I'm, I'm of the generation where my mind was warped from the beginning by digital connection. Mm-hmm. As I was referencing AOL Instant Messenger, like I didn't have a time pre-digital communication to develop any other normal real world type of interacting with women. It was always, obviously I saw them in person from time to time, but so much of the early romantic interactions were typing and then later texting. So I'm super interested in the way that that has warped my own mind and the, and the mind of other people and, and men of my generation. Yeah, I am profoundly grateful that I grew up without that for Mm. a whole host of reasons. Having said that, for me, it's been a long journey in confidence and learning how to interact with women. And it's actually inextricably intertwined with who I am on stage. The very short version would be as I've learned and been willing to be more and more vulnerable and authentic on stage, I've, well, Two things. One, I've found the same willingness and ability in one-on-one interactions with women. And also I've found my ability to attract and and meet women has, has gone up a lot. I mean, the way I meet women is the vast majority of them are from shows, which is a very interesting way to meet someone because I tend to be so self-revealing on stage they know a lot about me by the time, you know, we're going on our first date, which may be right after the show they know a lot of the intimate details of my life. And it's, yeah, I used to look at it as, I, as I've as i gone in the direction of greater vulnerability and talking about, you know, really dark stuff on stage that I feel like does not necessarily paint me in a, a positive light. My feeling was like, well, I feel this need to be really open, but man, this is just going to repel woman. And it's been uniformly the opposite. The more I out myself, <laughs> the more I put myself out there in, in sometimes uncharitable light, the more women seem to want to meet me. Yeah. I don't tend to meet as many women at work as you do. Well, yeah, the patients are off limits, unfortunately. <laughs> it's really, it's really, you know, it's an old fashioned rule, but it's- how, how much do you really want this Valium, Patricia? I don't know why he's Patricia as a name. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And it's it's an unfortunate reality, but there are a lot of unscrupulous therapists out there. It's, it's far more common than one would think for therapists to have sexual relationships with their patients, which is just, I've had, I've had some moments in my own therapy as my own, my own therapy has gotten deeper and deeper. I've had a few moments of realization where I'm just like, Oh my God, if you, because obviously I'm a little bit in love with her. My therapist is a, is a woman who I care for deeply. And there's totally an element of erotic transference, I would call it. And, and, wow. and at some point we can get more into what that term means. Um, but I've had some moments of realization where I'm just like, oh my God, if you seduced me or like I seduced you and we slept together, that would fuck me up so badly. It's the most profound violation 
and the fact that it happens is devastating, including that it, it has, it's happened in the psychedelic research world in the last couple of years. Yes, just, right. Well, there was a, an episode that MAPS disclosed recently, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Super disappointing. But also, I think, understandable in the sense of when you're being that vulnerable and intimate with someone, I guess what I'm saying is it is, I think, unforgivable in terms of the damage it, it, it causes. But I'm not shocked to hear that it is an ongoing problem. But you're, you're saying I should still go for it. I have a chance with my therapist. I think if there, you know, there should be an exception in the, if they don't have grotesque lips or earlobes, I think you should be allowed to. There's a great joke. Uh, Dave Vitell has this joke. He's like, I don't remember the setup, but the punchline is, and I think if your cousin is really hot, you should be able to bang one time. <laughs> <laughs> If you're not familiar, a great, a, a great comic. But yeah, no, obviously it's, it's, it's horrific to think of the damage that would wreck and the violation of trust and self-worth that would come from that. Yeah, this is something I think we're going to come back to over and mm-hmm. over because you wanting to yet again, try to figure out if Jordan should try to sleep with his therapist. <laughs> right. Um, no, the. The question of how do I, as a man, show up to the romantic playing field with my integrity intact, but also owning my desire, not shutting that down, not not hiding the fact that I have strong feelings and desires for women that are, you know, at times not super like PG. And also not being a fucking monster. Like, yeah. How, how does it pull your dick out? How is appropriate? Yeah. Like not in the, just in the, you know, in the, we are in the, the wake of the me too era right now, you know, that, that, I mean, that ship is still passing and, and very valuably, in our culture, but it also has left a lot of turbulence. And I think for a man right now to try to figure out how do I still, how do I go up to a a woman in public and, you know, try to establish a connection express, Hey, you caught my eye. I think you look really interesting. I'd love to get to know you for me in my life. That's been extremely difficult for me to do. I've been so scared of that. And I grapple a lot with the question of how do I, yeah, how do I show up kind of in integrity in these situations as the man I want to be? And I've come to realize that for myself, the answer to that question is actually extremely complicated and is sort of the tip of the spear of all of the other things I do in my life the, you know, the exercise, the trying to be a contributing member of society, doing my own inner work, healing my stuff with my mom, that that's actually all in essence, like that is behind this desire to, to feel more comfortable and and easy meeting women, meeting the, the women part I used to think was a sort of a sideshow. And I've come to realize that it can actually, and I haven't come to realize this on my own. It came through a series of conversations in part with a friend who's writing a book on the subject who we'll have on here at some point. I've come to realize that 
it can be a spiritual pursuit. And and just to clarify what you're saying, do you, when you the tip of the spear, meaning that in some sense, the motivation for doing this inner work, for being a contributing member to society, for trying to heal the river through your mom, et cetera, et cetera, do you mean that in some sense, the motivation is to be able to be in a place where you're more comfortable meeting women or present? What, yeah. What, yeah, what do you, yeah. I think what I'm, trying to, I think I'm putting a lot of fancy language and spiritual window dressing on the fact that I'm just trying to say that everything I do is ultimately about trying to get laid. And by get laid, I mean, find the love that I want. Maybe also, I mean, this is like, we really want, we really have to unpack because that's, that's been my assumption of what I've wanted for a long time. And I'm, now questioning them. And then Clara came to the yeah. picture and uh, all this stuff. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be funny if we just do this podcast for years and we never get to the story of Clara? It's just like, it's that, I haven't seen that play, but what is it, Waiting for Godot, where it's like the, the titular character who I think never shows up. From where it's, it's all about Clara. Where's Clara? Like, well, I mean, you've discovered you've discovered the financial secrets of any good psychoanalyst. How do you think you get someone to come to come lie on your couch four times a week for eight years on end? You don't like you don't solve their material issues right away. You just keep stringing them along. So this is maybe this is just a narrative device to enrich the the interest of the podcast. But anyway, what you just uh, to what you just said, where yeah, it's all about getting laid, which really means finding true love. But does it really? Yeah, this is such rich stuff. But I to to the point at hand. Yes, I grappled with what it sounds like you're grappling with a great deal for many years. How do I meet women? How how do I get love slash you know get laid? And more get love because I was able to, to some extent, get laid. And I feel like I've kind of, this sounds arrogant maybe, but it feels like I've solved that problem for myself. But my solutions are somewhat, I mean, a big part of it is, yes, I meet women from performing and that that works well for me, but also in other contexts too. And a lot of it has come down to, to what you're saying, a lot of the work that I've done has, I think, gotten me to a place in my life where I feel generally more present in interactions with men and women and kind of able to be able to talk to even a stunningly beautiful woman and talk to them like I'd talk to anyone else. I'm able to be with even women who might intimidate me in a way that just feels fairly easy and, and organic and authentic, but that has taken uh, many, many years, many, yeah. many years. Yeah. Well, A, that sounds great. I'm super jealous. But B, it brings, I, it, in my mind, it brings us back to the point I was responding to that I think got us off on these, this tangent after tangent, which was the, you brought up data points from when you were a teenager. Right. How did you resolve and to question, have your, yeah. Yeah, something I've thought a lot about is this question of, is there a number? Is there finally a woman? Is there a number of women or is there <laughs> one special woman who's so, who's just so amazing and out of my league or yeah, just blows my mind so much that I'll finally, that it'll finally be the, the moment that, what was the roommate's name? 
Tanaz. Yeah, where I'll finally have my Tanaz moment and just my insecurities will melt away and I'll be like, oh, finally, okay. I'm worthy. I'm attractive enough. I'm in, you know, increasingly convinced that the answer to that question is no. There is no number of notches in the belt. There is no number of impressive, intelligent, beautiful lovers that will fix me, that it has to come from inside. My confidence. Yeah. I, I, I Listen, I think if you bang your therapist, man, it'll just, that's just, 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 uh, just nail her and uh, you're, you're good. I mean, it's the ultimate therapy. I don't know what your copay is on that session, but whatever it is, it is well worth it, my friend. <laughs> oh God, I feel so protective of her. <laughs> yeah, just like your mom. It's, it's, yeah, it's hitting. It's hitting. When you say, when I hear when the I word like, bang your therapist come out of your mouth, it lands in this like mom, in this mom. Like I'm talking to, wow. We make jokes. We, we make, have made lots of jokes to each other about banging, <laughs> the edible desire to bang one's mom. <laughs> Yep, and I feel like I've almost replaced my mom with my therapist at this point. So it, it's, it's even rawer when I hear that. Wow, it's that. Yeah, there's a lot there. But uh, what I what I did want to say is oddly enough. So yes, there, there's this sort of fairly conventional narrative that, of course, self acceptance and love have to come from within, and I think that's largely true. But in my experience. Absolutely. External validation has helped move the needle in that regard for sure. But also it's sort of this self-reinforcing circle in the sense that, so as I've gained more confidence, and I want to be clear, I still have deep insecurities in many, many domains of my life, including with women. Absolutely. I mean, no, no question. But as there has been a, a significant shift over the years, and I've just generally felt better about myself, women have shown more attraction to me. And as more women have shown more attraction to me, that has, yeah, it would be nice to say, oh, it doesn't really make a difference. It does make a difference. The external data absolutely has helped further buttress my sense of self-worth, which in turn has attracted more women. It's the, that's the phrase I was looking for. It's this sort of virtuous cycle. So I guess if I were to break it down, I'd say it's been primarily an inner shift, but the external validation has absolutely helped with that too. And it's the question, it relates to a question that we were getting at on the last show about like, sort of the nature of emotional suffering and psychiatric symptoms. And is it about, are these, are the things that trouble us sort of discrete, different diagnostic categories, or are they just various different manifestations of some underlying imbalance or disturbance that kind of pops up here or pops up there? So there's some, there's some core wound and when you were in your adolescence, it popped up as body dysmorphia. And then Tanaz, the Tanaz moment happened and like something clicked into place. And, you know, from the standpoint of the sort of conventional psychiatric diagnostic system, we would say like you went into remission of your body dysmorphic disorder. And then at some later time, wouldn't you know, like out popped a, you developed obsessive compulsive disorder. You, you caught a case of OCD. And from, you know, from my view, it doesn't matter so much what the surface thing is. 
what, how it's manifesting at any given time, what symptom clusters are popping up, be it depression, anxiety, obsessive thinking, hair pulling, what have you. That stuff's some, you know, important to a degree. But for me as a clinician and as a human being, I'm much more interested in what's the deep what's the deeper thing that's unsettled? What's this deep emptiness, this doubt in yourself, this core feeling of not being good enough that sort of, it's like you squeeze one of those, those, those toys you can get that are filled with goo and you, you squeeze one gel balls kind of. Yeah. It's like, it'll be kind of bulging out of one place. You squeeze that and it just goes and bulges Mm -hmm. out somewhere else. I'm much more curious about what's that deeper pressure in you that, that then popped out. Yeah. So the, the core wound thing, and I saw it with this relationship with Clara as it manifested in the last week where I was like, yeah, well, you're, there was definitely, there's, there absolutely is some deeper stuff. I guess, is it worth going back into my relationship history to kind of try to trace that at this stage? We're going to have to get there at some point. Why don't, what, why don't what feels yeah just I'd, I'd kind of go with what feels most yeah let's let's keep you. going linearly I'm not going to go through every relationship yeah. but because I think this is important context and then I want to either today or I want I want to you know do the same for you or you can chime in when it feels appropriate no I mean we'll uh, get there eventually as long as you keep showing up and not paying me then <laughs> right. I'm here you know <laughs> so so all right so Erica so she dumps me for a woman. And I flip out. So you're like a freshman uh, kick, in college at this point? As a freshman in college. I'd been in college yeah. for about a month. I'd gone to visit her. Yeah. Very, um, very, I think, ripe time for the flowering of the, this or any sort of mental health symptoms. Freshman year. The tra- freshman and the transition college. was hard. It was odd. I had no anxiety about leaving for college. But when I got to college, I felt uncomfortable there. I remember oddly calling my mother saying I wanted to come home because I didn't like the showers in my dorm. They weren't dirty or gross. It just felt suffocating. So there was what I'd say now, looking back, I did have kind of some panic reaction. And in fact, I did get panic attacks soon after this, but I wasn't even identifying it as such. But I was at college. I was meeting people, making friends, but Erica was still the focus. Went to visit her. She drops the hammer. It's over. I flip out. I just can't, I can't handle how I'm feeling. I kicked in the window of my car, but I also wasn't really angry. I was just kind of sitting on her bed, just saying, I can't do this. I can't go on. A therapist from her college came and talked to me. Eventually, a friend of mine came and picked me up, drove my car to my parents' house. A few days later, I was there just very distraught. I was talking about suicide. I wasn't actually suicidal, but I just couldn't. I couldn't handle the way I was feeling. Yeah, His emotions were, very, were intolerable. Very intense distress. Yes. So they brought me to the ER and then I was like, you know what? I don't want to fucking, I don't want to go into mental hospital. So I said, I'm not suicidal. They let me go. Then a few days later, I was like, I need to go to a mental hospital. So I did go into a mental hospital near my college. I was going to school in Rhode Island. My parents live in suburban Boston. I went in for three or four days. As soon as I was there, I wanted to get out. I did get out. And then two weeks later, I flipped out again, went into a mental hospital for it wound up being two weeks. And just to paint a picture of my distress, I remember talking to Erica on the phone, one the pay phone one day, and she told me that she was 
I don't know why this came up. I probably asked, but a, a boy in our high school class who she had dated before me, she was talking to again. And remember, I took the payphone and just started smashing it against the wall. And the orderlies came and injected me with something and sedated me and strapped me to the bed in my room. And so it was that level of just not being able to tolerate how I was feeling because I thought this was the salvation. The hole had yeah. filled and now, now the salvation was yanked away, but it was worse. It was worse than never having it, you know, better mm-hmm. to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. Bullshit. That's how I felt then. I felt like I'd been given a taste of what I could have if I wasn't such a horribly deformed monster, but no, it's being yanked away. And in my mind, this just reinforced the narrative that even someone who loved me ultimately could not get past my ugliness. And uh, so I was in the hospital for two weeks and then I got discharged and I took the rest of that semester off from school. And yeah, I don't know if you had something you wanted to. Yeah. Just like really appreciating how appreciating you sharing that and just appreciating how really intense that was. Yeah, it was really, I mean, I remember this moment when the orderlies came and one of them bent my pinky back as like a control thing, you know, cause you can't fight, I guess when, and dragged me to my room and do that anymore. Yeah, they were, they were, they were not gentle, but to be fair, I was being violent and scary and I was a pretty well-muscled 200 pounds, six foot two dude at that point. The brutalities of the psychiatric system is something we can uh, spend ample time getting into at some point, but it's really just thinking of you. Yeah, I get it because you, you were a big guy and you were, and it can be scary. People can be really scary on inpatient units, but yeah, you were just hurting. I I was hurting and I didn't, it was, you know, and this is the same, let's tie it to, I mean, I felt echoes of this a few days ago with Clara where not anything to that magnitude, but this sense of, oh God, there's a feeling that I don't want and really feel like I can't handle. The difference is now I know I can handle it. And by handle it, I mean, I can sit with it and cry and do whatever I need to do, move my body, all sorts of tools and techniques I've developed. But, you know, it's funny, I'd seen at age, I was 18 then, and I'd seen therapists pretty consistently for close to a decade at that point. But again, it was this very cognitive intellectual process of trying to understand my problems. And in the face of these overwhelming physical emotions, that offered zero help. Well, and I think that's... You know, I think that's we're talking about right now, these horrible memories from the past and this intense pain you are in, but there's not that much emotion I'm sensing in either of us right now. We're kind of talking about it intellectually. The gateway into what's real and what's in your body would be talking about what's going on right now is talking about Clara because yeah, the present moment that's how I work in therapy is that, you know, pretty much always talking about what's going on right now is, is much more productive than talking about anything happening outside of the room. And that's a big, that's a big staple of a, of a psychoanalytic approach is that the pay dirt is right here, right now in the room between us what's or or what's going on in your mind right now as you're sitting here right at this point these are stories these are narratives that are part of my history but yeah it was it was devastating and so then I, I did go back to school 
And that's when I started meeting more women. I actually met a woman in the psych ward. We didn't have a physical relationship, but it seemed like there was some attraction. And going back to college, actually, while I was still, yeah, it was while I was still on leave that semester, I did finally lose my virginity. I guess I'll throw this in just because it's a funny side note, or maybe it's not to someone with a psychoanalytic bent. So the night before we were leaving for college, Erica finally said yes to having sex. And, and I couldn't get it up. I couldn't get it up. Never happened before. It has only happened one time since <laughs> I will, I will throw in. Mm-hmm. And part of me feels like, well, maybe it was just too high pressure. She was leaving. I'd wanted this for so long, but part of me feels like maybe there was a feeling of, I was somewhat conflicted because I did have an awareness that she maybe didn't totally want to do it and was to some extent responding to pressure from me. And maybe that relates to this real fear of hurting women, which I think you can clearly tie back to my mother because we haven't gotten to that whole story. That's another one. But there was certainly a sense growing up that I was constantly wounding my mother, that I was the greatest source of suffering in my mother's life. And I actually don't think that's untrue now, even from this remove, but I think it was a one-sided view. Yeah. I mean, the fear of hurting women is the title of my memoir. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) call it the Jordan Hyper story. (laughs) Subtitle, but yet still, yeah, the fear of hurting them and the desire to to love them and get their love in various ways. And yeah. And, and that and, is obviously like you're in mom town yeah. when you're <laughs> right. we're in, when we're getting into that, we are just in Mom'sville, USA. <laughs> Population us. Oh yeah. But yeah, so this was so anyway, I did not lose my virginity to Erica. But yeah, when I took that semester off after I got discharged from the mental hospital, I had sex for the first time. My honest reaction was, that's it. Like it wasn't even, I thought it was going to be this transcendent, at least physically euphoric experience. It wasn't, you know, not surprising now with someone I met at a frat party, there was no deep emotional connection. But so I did have sex and the next couple of years, it was sort of meeting more women but in my mind, still holding on to this thing that I'm ugly until I had that tenacity moment where I realized that, all right, I'm, at least by many people's standards, I'm not ugly. Then I had, soon after that, my first real college girlfriend. I'm thinking of a pseudonym. I don't think we even need one because we're not going to get into much detail. Uh, Lauren. And that relationship, there was some real love there. And then she broke up with me. And I really went into this deep rumination, real anger towards her and her new boyfriend. For months afterwards, Mm. I was just obsessing about the nasty things I wanted to say to her and her boyfriend, the way I wanted to put them in their place. So this real ruminative, obsessive, you know, which I look at clearly as an indication of, oh yeah, there was some deep wound scratched and anger is a theme for me. It's something I've grappled with for my life. And I always look at anger as a way to try to protect against vulnerability. Yeah. Um, and particularly anger, anger at women, anger right. at, the, at the female object, object being a, like a technical, a technical psychotherapy term I'm using there. Can you speak more to what, what that term? So it's borrowed from like a, a very big psychoanalytic concept called object relations, which is basically the study of how 
for most of us, other people exist sort of in two ways. Like you are Adam, you are your own person with your own needs and wants and failings in the world. But in my mind, there's also really, I'm interacting with the, the object Adam that I hold in my mind of Mm -hmm. you and what you represent in my mind. So you might represent, you know, something about, I might be projecting stuff, something about my father onto you. So basically there's sort of part object relations and whole object relations, whole object relations. If I was, if I'm relating to you as a whole object, which is the goal, which is a sign of health, it's I'm, I'm appreciating you as your own individual person who's separate from me. When I'm relating to you as a part object, I'm relating to more the, I, the image of you I, I have in my mind, which is, I think, you know, I think that's what's going on when your college girlfriend breaks up with you and you're just devastated and furious. I just and, want to clarify a little more about this because I'm not totally. So yeah. the part object, uh, if I'm ta- if I'm understanding this is the idea of like, I'm primarily, because of course, without getting to, you know, stone 15 year old pseudo philosophy, obviously we, we only have our own internal experience, you know, everything <laughs> is, everything is fundamentally my own through the, through the gateways of my senses. Yeah. But, so what I think what you're saying is the part object is something where it's, is it, is it a difference of degree rather than category by which I mean, is it like part object means I'm primarily relating to my internal representation of you versus full object means, I think you're, I think you're right on it to understand it. I think it's necessary to go back to early childhood development because that's obviously where all this stuff sort of comes online and often where the, where it gets thrown awry when things don't go Mm -hmm. right. So a baby has no sense of self and other. There is just existence and sensations of hunger show up and then a breast shows up to to satiate that hunger and the baby has no sense that that breast is coming from outside of them i mean the question that i I, this would be too big of a digression but like how do we know (laughs) yeah that's why a lot of people have trouble with psychoanalysis is because it's very theoretical and you're, yeah, you're not going to like get data for this supposition. We're so not interviewing babies, like, we're not interviewing babies, like, hey, do you think that breast is a part of you or a separate <laughs> thing? Wow, once if it's um, for yes or. But for me, it just when I read these theories, it just it clicks and it makes so much sense. And a lot of people have been thinking about this for a long time, and was sort of cross-checking it against their clinical experiences with their patients and in their own therapy. And it just, it really resonates with me. Okay. So, so go on. So, right. So the baby doesn't have, doesn't make a distinction between self and other. It's just experience. Yeah. And so as you grow, it takes, it's, it sort of takes developmental work as you grow up to recognize people as wholly separate from you. And I think there's an argument to be made for that most, you know, most people in our society, which just doesn't do a very good job of raising children, most people in our society never get to the point where they fully appreciate people as separate objects from themselves. So many of us, myself at many times, I think I'm, I'm a lot better about this than I used to be, but so many of us, I think, walk around 
sort of secretly in our minds, unconsciously viewing all the other people we interact with as like characters in a stage play that we're projecting from our own mind. Absolutely. Yeah. And so when your college girlfriend breaks your heart and you are filled with this rage, knowing what I know about you, about your childhood, which we'll get into on the show is like, that sounds an awful lot to me. Like what you were doing was projecting onto her feelings that were unconsciously more properly directed towards your mother. But she, at that point, was this canvas representing female attachment object. And you, onto that canvas, paint your own. That's what we're doing all the time, you know? Yeah. It's like, oh, what? you just have, you have a script in your mind for, like, woman that I love. And, mm. who, you know, who, it's not who, mom anymore, so you just, you're throwing it onto this woman, that woman. I think the work of therapy, the work of spiritual development is learning to let the past be in the past so that you can appreciate the present with fresh eyes and see your partner as like, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I shouldn't actually scream at you when we run out of toilet paper. Like that's actually my mom shit. That has nothing to do with you. Though in these times of coronavirus, running out of toilet paper is, is, is a capital offense. <laughs> 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 yeah, no, I, that, that, that's helpful. And yes, absolutely. I, I think that's been, I'm continually humbled to realize how hard it is to, at a deep level, acknowledge that other people exist. I mean, I, I don't question it intellectually and yet, well, you know, it's, yeah, I have my own experience and it is very uh, and this relates to a lot of what I'm grappling with with Clara right now is, to, is I don't want to say more other than to a concern that maybe she is less far along the path of recognizing the inherent existence and value of others than I am, which could be an age thing, but that's, I don't want to go, go down that road yet. But some of the decisions that she made. Oh, we're not going to go down the road of you dating women who are 20 years younger than you yet? Yeah, spoiler alert. Um, yes, she is 20 years young, younger than I am. And not even, yeah, that's not atypical. But but yeah, no, thanks for defining the the, the object relations thing. And what we were, we were talking about, oh, I was just going through the history, right? So my girlfriend, first, my first real college girlfriend breaks up with me. But yeah, this real anger that came in uh, uh, to, to this rejection, and especially the fact that she, had, in my mind, she had chosen someone else over me. I didn't think I was ugly anymore, but there still was a lot of desperation and need. Then I had other girlfriends in college and then post-college, I, my last college girlfriend, we actually moved in together in New York and we, we lived together for a couple of years and I loved her, but I have to say in that tone of voice, it was, I don't know if I was ever really in love with her. She was a, a, a kind, considerate, sweet, stable, well-balanced person. But as time went on, increasingly, I was feeling like, yeah, this isn't it. This isn't the answer. And then I met, and let me think of a good pseudonym for this one. She'll be coming up a lot. Um, hmm, Annie, we'll use that pseudonym. I met her in 2001 and still unquestionably the most profound romantic connection of my life. Mm. And we just just fell totally in love 
And we can certainly unpack that relationship. But for our purposes right now, we were together for about two and a half years and that relationship ended. And in the aftermath of that, that's when I developed OCD. So as that relationship progressed with Annie, I will say this, you know, madly in love, but then that high starts to fade inevitably. And Mm -hmm. as that, so similarly to Erica, but even more intensely, when I was madly in love with Annie, it was like, yeah, it was just a state of real bliss. There was still suffering in my life. I developed terrible insomnia at that point, and I was very obsessed with sleep. I was running my own internet company and not doing a good job, so that was a lot of stress. So if you'd asked me during that time, Adam, are you happy? I would probably, I don't know if I'd say I was happy, but I was high. I mean, that love drug was just boom. Then as that started fading, even though I still loved her and my heart was still deeply connected to her, my mind more and more started saying, hey, you had this wonderful high with Annie. Now it's fading. Shouldn't you try to find someone else? Maybe you can find someone better than her, smarter than her, hotter than her, and you can get that high and it will never end. I didn't (laughs) act on those feelings, but those thoughts were there. And when the relationship did end, which we'll talk about another time, the reasons why, I was not conscious of a feeling of loss, as crazy as that sounds. I was conscious of a feeling of opportunity. Well, great. Now I can find that better, that ideal woman and get who will totally fulfill me in every way till the end of time. So this relates to what we've been talking about where this unwillingness to feel loss and sadness is, I think, the root and the motivator of obsessive compulsive disorder because I did not have OCD before then. We talked about this on the last episode. I had... With the decision-making, I had no trouble making decisions. And very soon after Annie left, I started having trouble making every single tiny goddamn decision. And it just took over. And I didn't cry once, not once, for years. Not once did I cry. Did I Was I aware of mourning her? But I look at it that there was this deep loss in my heart. And so I went into my head and tried to fix everything. And that's where the OCD came from. Yeah. It sounds like in tracing the relationships that we've talked about today and in Clara, which we got into a little bit yesterday, there's the two patterns that I'm seeing when relationships end for you are either anger or obsession. And Oh, and sorry, just to throw in, there was extreme anger at Annie, uh, partially because there had been some infidelity on her part. But in a way, that almost just gave me an excuse to be angry. It was very, very comfortable for me to go into anger with her. And I went into it. Yeah. Yeah. So anger and and then obsessiveness. And, and as you're saying, the question is, where's the sadness and the loss? Where are those yeah. feelings? And it's, it certainly begs the question of, are these other things a defense from feeling something that's far worse? Well, and I, I think the answer is at least partially, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Should we wrap here? Yeah, I feel like maybe that's a good stopping point for today. Yeah, because this, this will lead to a lot of other stuff. So, yeah, why don't we wrap up this session and we can pick up where we left off at our, our next appointment. Do, is there anything you want to add? Yeah, 
I think we'll get more into it another time. But I I think that you had more, you were younger, you had more of an ability than I did to let yourself attach and feel really strong emotions and then have it come crashing down and hmm. feel the anger and then kind of go back for another hit. I think... At some point, I think it happened for me in college when I had my heart broken really badly. Since then, my pattern has been more one of avoidance. So rather than going back and looking for that ecstatic love again, for the last, I want to say for the last 12 years of my life, although I've certainly, I've had, I've had love and I, I've, I had one serious relationship during that time. By and large, I think for the last 12 years of my life, I haven't let myself feel that, that drug, the high of love. I relate to that completely. So I'll, I will go a little bit further in my narrative just because it connects directly to, to what you're saying. Annie leaves, I developed this OCD, and basically I'm meeting women at that point but every woman I met, there is something wrong with. There's a reason why. Uh, so my conscious experience is not, oh, I'm not willing to open up to them. My conscious experience is, oh, I want love. I want to go back for another another round of you know that abandon and that surrender of love. I just can't find the right woman. But and did you see that mole on her neck? It's like I, I don't even. So her left like, eyebrow, the asymmetry of her eyebrows, don't even get me started, man. Yeah. What am I going to do? Put a bag over her head? I mean, come on, her. <laughs> oh, God, that's not a nice thing to say. <laughs> it's not a nice thing to say. Uh, I know, but, but we have these ugly thoughts. Well, well, and let, let, me, let, me, let me pull that back a little bit. It wasn't, I mean, certainly I'm, I'm a human, so I judge people based on their looks, and there are people who I, I feel like, oh, yeah, I'm not attracted to them at all. Obviously, the woman who I, were, I was getting involved with, there was some attraction. It wasn't like, oh, they're, ugly. It wasn't even like they're unattractive. It was uniformly, it was, they are attractive, but either they're just not attractive enough or yeah, they're beautiful, but you know what? I just, they don't have a sense of humor or they have a great sense of humor and they're beautiful, but you know, she's just not that smart or she's a little too straight laced or she's though to be fair and to own it, the most common reason I would rule out women as real potential lovers, as opposed to people that just have sex with, uh, not just, there were a range of relationships, but the reason I would say, okay, this isn't going to be the love of my life. The most common excuse was some perceived physical imperfection. Um, that was, that was the most common thing. And, and then of course there were women who I'd be like, oh, they're great. She checks all the boxes, but then they would reject me inevitably. So the narrative for so many years, so this things with Annie ended in 2003. And for many, many years, I would, if you asked me, you know, what was going on in this department, I'd say, yeah, I feel like I'm open. I really want love, but I just can't find the right person. And it's kind of like the parable of the person who, you know, there's a flood and a boat comes and they say, oh, no, 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 God's going to save me. And then whatever. And then a helicopter comes, no, no, God's going to save me. And they drown. And then in heaven, they're like, hey, God, why didn't you save me? What do you mean? I sent a truck, a boat and a helicopter. I was meeting women who were, you know, <laughs> I can look back and see some of these women. Oh, yeah, I could have had something with that person. 
but I couldn't because there was something because my, my heart, the narrative I go with now is my mind was aware that I'd had this terrible heartbreak and you better believe my mind is, it's not going to let my heart open up unless if it's totally safe. And what does that mean? It means someone who is perfect and ideal because obviously, especially with the decision-making OCD developing, the last thing I want to do is fall for someone who, who's not perfect and ideal because then I know I'm not going to stay with them if I'm a, such a hardcore optimizer. So that was my story for many, many years, and that story has been changing recently, and I think that's probably what we'll, we'll get into um, next time. Yeah, much more to be said on all of that. I felt, before we wrap up, I wanted to say, the, um, I, I, I resonate so much with so much of that, and that'll come out at various points in the show, though, like the obsessive fault finding tendency, especially when you're with the more committed you are with someone, the deeper you are in it with someone sort of the more obsessive, the looking, the looking around and fault finding what that person is. And that's a pattern that I'm so you mean, tired looking around for other options. Yeah. Like walk right. every, every woman you walk by on the street. As soon as I have a girlfriend, every woman I walk by on the street, I'm like, maybe she's, maybe she's, yeah, maybe she's my <laughs> totally. And I'm like, I'm so desperately tired of that pattern in my own life. But just to close on the, um, cause I feel like I reacted strongly to your, to your paper bag comment, you know, out of, <laughs> namely out of my own security that our, our people, our audience of mothers listening to this are going to think we're total jerks. But then I was reflecting on that reaction I had and I was, thinking that, you know, if there's one goal, if there's, if there's one goal that to get out of this podcast, that would be really noble. It's to normalize for people who've never been in therapy and don't, yeah, kind of don't know this language, don't know what the process looks like. It's to normalize that every single person on earth has thoughts in their head that they are disgusted by and that they think that if anyone heard them, they would think you were a monster. And, you know, if we can, if I can normalize that for people that like, you're not a monster just because you had that thought you're allowed to have, you're allowed to have dreams where you kill people. You're allowed to have thoughts in your head that you're like, Oh my God, if anyone heard that I'd get fired from my job. As far as I can tell, that's just a normal part of being a human. Yeah. And I would just add to that. I think it's a noble goal, not just for people who don't have exposure to therapy, but people who have been in therapy, because particularly talking to other people with OCD, one thing I hear a lot is, oh yeah, I was in therapy for a decade, but I never told my therapist about this obsessive thought that I was going to suffocate my children in their sleep because of course they would call the cops on me or kick me out. So I think the shame around our thoughts can be so intense that it allows us not even to open it up in a, in a therapeutic context. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly what you're saying. If I had to describe in a nutshell what I believe in my view is the mechanism of good psychotherapy, because this has been my experience in my own, in my own therapy, me being the patient is you have a thought in your head that you think you can't tell because someone will reject you for it. You tell it to a person, the person says, Oh, that's not so bad. I still like you. And you feel so much better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's endless. It's endless. Yeah. Sweet. Well, well 
great talking to you again. This is, I, I'm really, I'm really appreciating this. Yeah, you too, brother. It feels really good. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Until next time. All right. Love you. Love you, brother.